0: Today's guest says that Africa punctured his arrogance. We'll find out what he meant in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk, and delighted to welcome Dr. Daniel Baxter, who is the author of One Life at a Time, an American doctor's memoir of AIDS in Botswana. Dr. Baxter is a physician, an HIV specialist, and internist at the William F. Brian Community Health Center in New York, New York. And today he is here to discuss his experiences of what has been described as the human side of AIDS in Botswana. Dr. Baxter, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you, and thank you for your interest. Dr. Baxter, you said that Africa punctured your arrogance. What did you mean? Well, when I went to
1: Botswana in 2002, I thought that as an AIDS doctor in New York, I had all of the answers and was going to help people there. But soon after I got there, I had two major patient catastrophes that showed me that I didn't have the answers. And in fact, I didn't even know the questions to ask. And so uh, Africa's time and space gave me time to soldier on and to find out what the real meaning of, of suffering was.
0: That's a big, that's a big concept. Um, that's a big question, the real meaning of suffering. What did you come away with?
1: Well, it sounds trite to say, but ultimately I concluded that no one's suffering is any greater than anyone else's. I went to Botswana with an arrogance about American patients saying that they were entitled, privileged, and demanding, and that the suffering in Botswana was of a far greater magnitude. But ultimately, it took a patient dying in the hospital my last year there. She was 20 years old. Um, She was comatose when I first uh, took over her care, She had been raped by her pastor at age 13 and had probably suffered incredible, incredible woes and problems. And I realized that ultimately, if you try to categorize suffering and say someone's suffering is greater than someone else's, you really cannot understand and empathize with either of them.
0: The idea... Uh, that she was raped by a pastor at 13 and comatose at 20, that in and of itself, I would think, would have been heart-wrenching to to sort of wrap your heart around.
1: Well, yes, um, and my epiphany came when I looked at all of the other patients in her cubicle in the female medical ward at the main hospital in Botswana, and I realized that practically none of them were salvageable. They had end-stage end uh, AIDS and its complications. I realized that, um, you know, we, we live in a world of suffering, and um, to try to say that someone's is greater than anyone else's, uh, I think is also arrogant. And in fact, this realization is what allowed me to return back to the United States And, you know, treat uh, American patients. And um, it's given me sort of like a a new lease on life as as a doctor.
0: When you first landed in Botswana, what was your initial response when you got off the plane?
1: Well, as I write in the book, uh, when uh, my British Airways 747 landed in Johannesburg... Um, I went into a panic attack, like, oh my God, what have I done? But as I note in the book, and I might add, my my book ha- is, is humorous in many spots, but as I noted in my book, um, then again, I was heavily hung over from too much wine and green Sambuca in Rome the night before. <laughs> so, you know, eventually I was able to get onto the Air Botswana flight to Habarone, and It was like a different world in the sense that it was dry bush, uh, very little vegetation, really not very attractive, but um, I was resilient enough to be able to just jump into uh, into the country and the
0: culture. The um, at, at the beginning of our conversation a moment ago, I uh, referred to the fact that you are looking at uh, the human side of AIDS in Botswana. And, you know, as you and I well know, When we think about these kinds of illnesses, or actually illnesses of any sort. The tendency is to look at it in terms of the numbers, the statistics. And we can easily forget that those statistics represent human lives. Why focus on one life at a time? Why does that... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, please, why focus on one life at a time?
1: Well, for me, that's the only way I could make sense of the sea of need swirling around me. Yes, World Health Organization and UNAIDS and the American uh, Centers for Disease Control have done wonderful uh, efforts to uh, address this problem. But as a frontline practitioner, um, I just focused on the patient that was there with me in the consultation room and um, that was the only way to to survive and not be pulled down by all of the suffering Mm.
0: what was the response of your patients when you first met
1: what was their response to you yeah that's a good question um the batswana are very kind and forgiving people and unlike uh, the black Africans in South Africa, just south of Botswana, they never really suffered under apartheid or any sense of repression. Um, And the fact that I was an American, white American doctor, I really don't think fazed them very much. Uh, The Botswana had a a bemused, uh, almost humorous outlook on us white people. in Setswana is their language, <clears throat> and the Setswana word for white people literally translated means vomit from the sea
0: oh my. and that goes
1: back to many centuries ago when the first uh white um men uh, were on ships, and you know with the foam of the ocean on the uh beach ah. they were washed ashore as well, so the batswana um uh, they They just reacted to me as the way they reacted to anyone else.
0: You describe in one life at a time the experience of watching people watch a progression of the illness and not say anything about the progression of the illness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, How would the illness progress? How would the individual change over time as he or she was becoming more and more ill?
1: Well, this was a scenario that was played out over and over again day after day in many of the businesses in Botswana, especially those that uh, had uh, manual laborers who were paid the minimum wage. Um, A worker would start to become uh, weaker and thinner and then would miss several work days. And then finally, word would seep in among his or her uh, uh, fellow workers that they had gone back to their home village, which is always a pre-terminal sign. And then a couple of weeks later, word would come back that they uh, had died. So for many of the, uh, especially uh, the minimum wage workers, the day laborers, Um, HIV AIDS was a mysterious
0: illness and they didn't talk about it they tried to ignore it and in ignoring it they died
1: exactly and you you have to understand that whereas we had great stigma and intolerance back in the 80s and early 90s and that of course has dissipated somewhat with the uh life-saving treatments that have converted HIV into a chronic illness. In Botswana, when I got there, the stigma, guilt, and shame was everywhere. And many people would sooner go to their graves than be HIV tested. Now, fortunately, that has changed over the past 15 years, as the uh, treatment program in Botswana now has all HIV infected or close to all HIV-infected patients on uh, uh, HIV treatments.
0: Back up a, a bit, because the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is is in the mix here. Can you describe to the listener their involvement in the work that you were doing?
1: Well, uh, the the Botswana National HIV/AIDS Treatment Program was the greatest public health initiative at the time, and uh, the Gates Foundation along with uh, Merck Pharmaceuticals, formed an organization called African Comprehensive HIV-AIDS Partnerships, or ACHAP, which worked closely with the government of Botswana in rolling out the treatment program. And um, the Gates Foundation basically provided money to bring people like me over there and also provided money for the tr- HIV training program for all of the healthcare workers. And it really is, um, I think, one of the greatest um, uh, philanthropic uh, efforts by the Gates Foundation and um, uh, it, it really has literally
0: saved hundreds of thousands of lives. <laughs> Kind of one of the best things that philanthropy can do in the world today is to save lives. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. You you taught a a course, uh, a kitso course. What does kitso mean? All
1: right. Well, the Setswana word kitso means knowledge, K I T S O, and of course it was uh, an acronym was formed that says knowledge, innovation, and training. Shall overcome AIDS. And it was funded by the Gates Foundation, Harvard University, which had a very significant and very important presence there, uh, organized it. And sort of by default, I became the lead trainer. And it was sort of like the HIV 101 program. And all healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, social workers, lab technicians, pharmacists, had to complete the three-day course. And it was my joy. Um, My line is, uh, I could never dance. I was always self-conscious, but the closest I ever came to dancing was when I was in front of the KITSO class, you know, teaching, joking, reassuring them that they could treat HIV. And, you know, in all honesty, I probably have trained... Over three thousand oh, healthcare workers over my years there, it was my my real joy, and I think that they loved it as well.
0: The uh, government uh, shared some messages uh, about AIDS prevention in Botswana. Were you surprised that the government got involved in that way? Well,
1: first of all, um, the, the treatment program would have never happened if the government of Botswana and the political leadership in the late 1990s um, had not realized that they needed to do something and they needed to do something fast. Okay. And um, the president at the time, Festus Mohally, I claim really deserves a Nobel Prize because he accepted the offers of help from the West, from Gates and Merck. And at the time, we didn't know whether or not you know, they could even, that this could even happen. But they did send mixed messages. Um, I mean, for example, President Mohai, when he would address uh, new recruits in the army, would say that, you know, it was necessary for the sake of the nation for the new recruits to practice safe sex, which As I wrote, can you imagine President Bush saying that to the (laughs) cadets of West Point? But the thing is, it sent the message that if you did become HIV infected, you would bring dishonor on the country, on your village, etc. The vice president at the time, who is a conversation unto itself, uh, Ian Kama, who was the son of the founding president, Sir Sir Saretse, Ian Kama actually said, and he was quoted in the newspapers, that, you know, every day that the uh, HIV patient takes his medicines, he or she should be reminded of the shame that they brought on the country and the increased economic cost. So, yes, they did send mixed messages, but by and large, the government was totally behind it, and Botswana is one of the few African nations... Where corruption and graft is very minimal, as opposed to other nations such as South Africa and Zimbabwe.
0: The, uh, I, I want to go back to the, the day that you landed, uh, first landed in Botswana. You were landing in a country where, at the time, it, approximately a quarter of the land was infected with HIV and you were one guy, you were one doctor. When you first arrived in this almost one-quarter land infected with HIV, were there other people, did other people go with you? Did you go alone? And again, I have to go back to a question that I've I've asked before. How did, I mean, the, the overwhelming concept of a quarter of the population. I mean, even if there were only 10 people living there, a quarter of the population is still a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. How'd you deal with it? And did you land there alone?
1: Yes, I was totally alone. I accepted the job sight unseen. Um, I like to joke that um, I've always approached life the way I play chess, one move at a time and i would add parenthetically i almost always lose when i play chess <laughs> and so um i i knew that i wanted to work in a developing country um yeah there were people there from the west uh that i uh you know worked with uh i initially although i was working for achap i also was associated with the university of pennsylvania and uh, several of the doctors there I had met earlier when I interviewed for the job in Philadelphia. But, um, yeah, I was basically by myself, but I've always been a loner. Um, and sure, I'm social. I have close friends and family. But um, for me, I thought uh, that just my music and my past experience in HIV Uh, would help me and as my book documents i had a lot to learn
0: what did your family and friends say as you were packing to leave the united states new york to go to botswana
1: well my mother of course worried but she always worried Uh, And the rest of the family and my friends, uh, it's like, well, Dan's doing his thing. And um, they knew that I had inherited my mother's stubbornness. And so no one tried to dissuade me at all.
0: What would you say is the, the state of understanding and treatment today, just worldwide, to the extent that you can comment on that? What's the state of awareness treatment for AIDS, HIV, AIDS?
1: I think that, I mean, we're light years ahead of the time of the late uh, 80s, early 90s, when it was uh, stalking the gay community here and intravenous drug users. I think Africa is is very, very enlightened. Um, They have far fewer hang-ups that we in the West do, and... You know, as I said, safe sex is discussed all of the time. Um, The biggest uh, area is Eastern Europe and Russia, where a lot of the HIV infections are transmitted by IV drug users, and then secondarily, men who have sex with men. And because of the closed societies there, there's a lot of uh, stigma. HIV is uh, criminalized. Here in the States, our major concern uh, is with certain populations, particularly young men who have sex with men, also uh, some of the minority communities. But again, pre-exposure prophylaxis, taking a pill a day to prevent HIV infection, is also uh, addressing the problem there. Um, And yeah, I think that the outlook is good, except for the areas that I mentioned.
0: There um, has been a growing number of women uh, impacted by HIV-AIDS. What do you think is going on there?
1: Well, as I said earlier, it's the issue of gender inequality. I would say that the majority, or, or at least over 50% of my patients in Botswana, uh, were, were women. Um, and... Um, You know, as you know, women are caregivers. They're particularly vulnerable to HIV infection, especially when they feel they don't have a right to insist that their partner uses a condom. Mm. Um, But even then, that is uh, moving forward and is being addressed.
0: Nowadays, social media is a part of everybody's life, almost whether they want it to be or not. Do you have any sense of the impact of social media uh, in particular on the away- awareness uh, of HIV-AIDS?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you can't go on any sort of dating site without being uh, uh, informed about the importance of HIV infection. I think the social media have really... Uh, promoted the idea of pre-exposure prophylaxis and the importance of uh, HIV testing. You don't hear as much about it here in the States as you do in countries like Botswana, however.
0: Well, that's interesting. What do you think that's about?
1: Well, in Botswana, they were facing the the, the extinction of their country. Mm. And, um, I mean, you would hear, and still do, on their radio and TV stations and on the billboards um, about, you know, condomize, condomize. Um, I mean, you couldn't go into a government ministry without seeing all sorts of posters about the importance of being HIV tested or if you're positive taking your medications every day because they were facing uh, the possibility of their country imploding from the HIV uh, epidemic.
0: Can you say a little bit more about the pre-exposure medications?
1: Okay. Uh, This has been a major advance. I might add, parenthetically, uh, in my book, I discuss um, how I ended up being persona non grata with the American Centers for Disease Control and Prevention because of a pre-exposure prophylaxis study that they were starting in Botswana. Uh, It's a a somewhat humorous and interesting story, but I won't go into it now. But it uh, basically has the potential to stop HIV transmission, especially in the community of men who have sex with uh, men. And it's basically taking a pill a day. The flip side of it, of course, is, you know, when you're giving a patient this pill to take, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. As a doctor, you say, now you need to take this every day to protect you, but you should still use a condom. Well, the reason people go on pre-exposure prophylaxis is so they don't have to use a condom. And as a result, we've seen an uptick in sexually transmitted diseases such as syphilis and gonorrhea. But yeah, so that's a major, major concern. But um, it's, been a major turning point in preventing HIV. Also, just getting a patient on treatment, having their virus suppressed to undetectable levels is another way to prevent transmission because if a patient's viral load is undetectable, they cannot transmit
0: HIV sexually. For those who don't understand what viral load means, explain please. It's the number of HIV part
1: per milliliter of blood. And someone with AIDS has up to millions and millions of viral particles in just a small little drop of blood, whereas someone who's on successful treatment, they can't find the virus. The virus is there, but our machines and laboratory techniques um, can't, uh, can't find it. So if you have a viral load that is suppressed, you cannot transmit HIV.
0: And for those who are hearing, you uh, briefly talk about pre-exposure treatment. How do they? How would you like people to think about that? Is that something that you would like to see everybody take? Or no, it's what? just people who
1: who are high risk, who have problems using condoms, and as I tell my patients. Um, You know, safe sex is very simple. It's a condom for rectal and vaginal intercourse, and that all other sorts of sexual activity is safe. And as I would joke with my patients, I'd say, and I don't think I need to go into the gory details of what all other sexual activity is. And so it all depends upon the patient's risk. This is a subject that your listeners can easily check on the Internet, Um, and determine whether or not they might be a candidate for it. And it's something that most primary care physicians should be able uh, to address with their patients.
0: Interesting. Dr. Baxter, you have given us so much to think about and, and so much to read and learn about in one life at a time. If you had a magic wand right now that worked what would you make different?
1: Different in my work or in terms of HIV?
0: In terms of HIV.
1: I would, with my magic wand, find a cheap, easy, non-toxic treatment that would eradicate HIV from the body.
0: That would be a wonderful thing indeed. Mm Mm-hmm. Daniel Baxter, author of One Life at a Time, an American Doctor's Memoir of AIDS in Botswana. Where can our listeners learn more about what you're doing and about One Life at a Time?
1: Okay. Um, I would suggest that they um, just check uh, on-site with my uh, publisher here in New York. It's called Skyhorse, S-K-Y-H-O-R-S-E. And I really have to thank them. I mean, they're a publishing house in New York, and many other publishing houses turned it down, I think, because of AIDS fatigue. And so they can give you the information. I will admit that I am a Luddite. I don't have any great social media. But if any listeners would like to contact me, my uh, office uh, email is Daniel.baxter. At Ryan Center, that's one word, R Y A N C E N T E R at Ryan Center dot O-R-G. I'd be happy
0: to answer any questions. Perfect. Daniel.baxter at RyanCenter.org and Skyhor Skyhorse Publishing dot com. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Baxter, for joining us today. Thank you for your interest. And, folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of MindTalk, which is brought to you daily as a, an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a mental health, medical health, or other professional. Remember, you can listen to MindTalk on demand by going to myndtalk.org. You can also download the MindTalk app from your iTunes or Google Play store. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk today. So do send an email to me. That's Pamela, P A M E L A, at mindtalk.org. That's also the place to send any questions or comments you may have about today's program or any Mind Talk program. And once again, that's M Y N D T A L K dot And folks, remember always if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. I never